Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use and wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Hey, this is Dr. Dyke Drummond at the home of thehappymd.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington with the next edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. And I'm super excited today because I have an old friend, Steve Beeson. And Steve is a family doc that has had a very non-traditional path into and through the world of medicine. And like me, um, he is now working with physicians to help them do better work through leadership, communication skills, authentic conversations, all sorts of other things. Just like I work as a coach and a consultant myself, we're making a difference in the healthcare field in a little different direction. And what I want to do is have Steve walk us back through time to the point in time where he was uh, facing a decision about whether or not he was going to continue to see patients. Because I know that for you, dear listeners, there are going to be some of you that are at this same point in time. And uh, uh, Steve managed to uh, dodge a bullet, and he's going to tell us the story. So, Steve, <laughs> take us back to when you were a full-time family clinician, and come bring us somewhat forward to today. Yeah, no, Dyke, it's it's uh, delightful to be back with you again, and I just applaud the work that you're doing and and trying to help clinicians find the love for the game and craft a future that's better for them. Because uh, we work way too hard and sacrifice way too much not to love what we do. And that's, uh, I think, the fire that burns inside both of us. And for me, you know, when I decided to become a physician, which was at a dinner party uh, with my uncle when I was a senior in high school. Oh, wait a minute. Okay, we got to hear this story. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was at the Old Spaghetti Factory, which is uh, <laughs> one of my favorite places. And I, I can't even tell you what I, what I had. I, I was eating the manager's combination with red sauce and mazithra cheese and probably a Diet Coke. And today it would be an IPA, but back then it was a Diet Coke. <laughs> so, and he told me about a day in the life of a physician. He's an, an amazing mentor of mine, uh, super smart, loves patients and uh, what it was like to build a set of skills to be able to diagnose, treat, and intervene to advance wellness. And I thought, God, what a great life that is. And, you know, he gave me that. I take it he was a family doc, right? No, he was a neurologist, if you can believe oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> so anyway, so he gave me all these opportunities. I spent the summer with him. He got me a job uh, as an orderly in the emergency department. Very cool. I took rounds with him and uh, he was in Toledo, Ohio. And we had Ohio State and Medical College of Toledo medical students and residents with them. And, uh, you know, he would ask questions. He was a pretty malignant attending in a very loving way, uh, meaning he would ask questions. But the residents who left our rotation got to leave after, you know, attending rounds. I got to go home with them. So it like never ended. And the way that you said that reminds me of uh, the Monty Python sketch. Is it true your brother nailed my wife's head to a coffee table? Yes, it's true. He's a cruel man. Cruel but fair. <laughs> cruel but fair. I, he used to ask me, we'd be on like the treadmill at the gym and be asking me like cranial nerve palsy. There you go. So, and my attendings, when I finally got into medical school and got into clinical rounds, I go, how in the world did you learn all this neuroanatomy? And 
<laughs> well, trauma. Uh, yeah, trauma. Yeah, I, I'm still experiencing PTSD. <laughs> anyway, so he sort of introduced me to the life of a physician and really showed me what it's like to care for others and times of suffering and what it what it's like to begin to learn the craft and deliver it in a way that is confluent with our deepest held beliefs of making a difference in the lives of patients. And so, you know, at that moment, I decided I'm going to flip the switch because we're sort of binary. We go, okay, show me what chapters to read. I'm going to read the chapters, take notes and get an A. That's, you know, that's our medical programming, right? And give me the next admission. I will not stop until I die. So that was my MO and ended up doing really well in undergraduate, despite the fact that I got a D on my first examination as a college student, because I didn't really prepare in high school. I was more, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so my first time at a college, I go, oh, I, I can't really get Bs anymore. So it was a pressure cooker number one. And it got, ended up getting a D in my very first examination. It ended up figuring it out, doing well as an undergraduate, ended up getting into a University of California, San Diego uh, School of Medicine and did residency there in family medicine and finished. And my plan was to see patients all day, every day for 35 years and call it a day. And uh, probably about six or seven years into my professional life, I was tapped on the shoulder to coach and train and develop clinicians as part of our organizational effort uh, with the Sharpie Steely Medical Group. And we were at the bottom decile for patient experience. We had very high attrition of physicians. And we had a, in a very competitive region with Kaiser Permanente and Scripps Health and the university literally on the same block competing for the same patients. And we needed our clinicians to step up, if you will. Uh, and we thought, gosh, let's show them how to be better for patients. And somehow that was going to be the solution. And so I began coaching and training clinicians in that process and spending time with them and listening to them and what they hope to achieve in their profession and the kind of clinician that they aspired to be and what they envisioned versus what they were and found this amazing realization that first of all, clinicians were accountable for things that they often never learned. Much of what clinicians were seeing in terms of red boxes were things that they had, they had no idea why patients were saying what they were saying about them. They were broken by these accountabilities and the feedback they were getting from leaders and patients. And literally half the clinicians I saw uh, as I shadowed them were in tears to say, this is not at all what I envisioned for myself. Right. And so, you know, the process of helping them become better and to say, what kind of clinician do you want to be for your patients? And, you know, when you put your head down in the pillow at night, what do you want that talk track to be to yourself. And they told this amazing story about what they envisioned. And they contrast that with what they were. And that delta was significant. So I was just an instrument to help them become what they thought they were going to be. And a lot of that was not only what they were for patients, but what they were for their children and for their spouse and for themselves and of creating durability in this profession. And as we provision these skills for clinicians in all sorts of arenas, personally and professionally, not only did their metrics transform and leaders said, yay, the box is green. Uh, but more importantly, I was seeing what was happening to these clinicians who said, this is what I thought it was going to be. And they were getting the, the that oxytocin dopamine pulse of making an impact with colleagues and making an impact with their teammates and making an impact with patients and, and coaching leaders to allow clinicians to be that, where clinicians would become involved in decision-making, where uh, leaders would get burden out of the way and to create a soil of appreciation, recognition, growth, and development, and setting a target, not of an RVU, but a target of making a difference in the lives of patients. 
And that was uh, the nidus for the shift. Right on. And so let me ask you just a quick question as I'm listening to you reflect upon your experience. One of the things that we teach here is about the whirlwind. Mm-hmm. Because anytime somebody comes into work, especially if you happen to be a physician, it's like walking into a little, the interior of a little tornado, little whirlwind. Mm-hmm. And the whirlwind is hypnotic. It has a mirror tendency from inside the whirlwind. All you can see is the inside walls of the whirlwind. And without a regular practice of stepping out of the whirlwind and being intentional about what you want your practice in your life to be like, if you don't step out and become intentional about how you want to relate to your patients and what a difference you want to make, which is what I heard you saying, I think, is you're being an intention guide. You're giving them a context in which they can decide who they want to be and then maintain that in the heat of the whirlwind. And that rocking motion, I I call it a cadence, a cadence of stepping out of your whirlwind with regular frequency is super important as the information overload and the inbox and the 24-7 access to you by text and all that stuff is just an absolute enemy of that kind of conscious, intentional practice. It is. It is. And, you know, even stepping back a few years from that moment of coaching and developing clinicians to be everything that they aspire to be which was eventually the source to starting a company that uses technology to build skills to allow it to manifest. And it was a radical pivot in my life. As you know, I was having my 2600 patient panel and my coaching and training clinicians at Sharpie Steely and traveling around the country, coaching and speaking at other health systems that wanted to coach and develop their clinicians to be better for the group. But ultimately, I was doing it because I wanted clinicians to love their life. And the provision of, of actions that would allow that to manifest, including stepping out of the world <laughs> and looking at other elements of what makes for durability in this profession. But like many people, I had a burnout story as well. And, uh, even before this tap on the shoulder, uh, after finishing residency on the supposition that my uncle told me, which is advancing skills to diagnose, treat and cure disease to advance the wellness of the patients that we serve between self-limited disease and neurologic disease and chronic disease and functional disease and factitious disease, our ability to do that is a very small portion of the time. And this principal criteria for what I consider to be the principal intervention of a physician didn't happen that frequently. And I felt like I was an incrementalist at best and a handholder often. And I thought to myself, I accrued debt for this. I sacrificed my youth for this. It's like, what the hell? This is not at all what I I thought I was going to go in there, make a diagnosis, issue treatment, get better next. And it's just not how it plays out. Oh, man, you should have been a surgeon. (laughs) I know. But well, hang on a second. Let's just define that sense. That sense is what's the use? That sense is. I'm not serving a purpose here. That's the third symptom of burnout. I just want to point that out. Yes. (laughs) And I was very much there. I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. I just knew that I was super frustrated at my choice. And I was wondering, I'm not sure I could do this for another couple of months, let alone another 30 years. So it was in that moment that I got the tap of the shoulder. And I thought to myself, there's got to be something better. And I felt as though this was a chance for me to diversify my professional experience. And I had this patient that I saw. Uh, and I told the story to other people and I may, you know, it's just, it, it had a profound. Wait a minute. At the old spaghetti factory. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this is not at the old spaghetti factory, but I've been there many, many times since then. The manager special, the zither cheese, meat sauce. Okay. It's excellent. 
But anyway, I remember this, this 15 year old came in to see me and this patient came in to see me with his mom. You know how 15 year old is, you know, you've had one. They, they, they look at the ground and they mumble. And anyway, he came in with a, what was clearly a viral pharyngitis of the sore throat. No adenopathy, no fever, no exudate. Uh, he came in, looked at the ground. I did my clinical evaluation. I swabbed his throat so they felt like I had done something. And so I had finished my clinical evaluation in three or four minutes. And then I said to this patient, I said, so where do you go to high school? This making connectivity talk. Small talk. Small yeah. talk, right. And he kind of mumbled looking at the ground that he went to Poway High School, which is my alma mater. That's where I went to high school because I apparently I'm not leaving San Diego. There we go. My alma mater, right? <laughs> So we had that in common. And then I, I said, so uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Great question to ask a kid. <laughs> so he's looking, yeah, he's looking <laughs> at the ground, the super awkward pause, his mom sitting there to his right, embarrassed, and kicks him and said, would you answer him? And he finally mumbles, staring at the ground, I want to be a doctor. And I thought to myself, well, you've got the personality for it. So, and uh, anyway, so, you know, he left, I left, I told Mr. Krabby. So, so I spent, I spent a minute or two telling him about the passage of becoming a physician, the short coat, the long coat, the MCAT, the preclinical, and literally one minute, two minutes tops. I left, he left, didn't think a thing about it. I come into clinic the next day and I get a phone call from that boy's mom. And uh, my nurse answers the phone. She says, uh, that boy's mom that you saw yesterday for the sore throat, she wants to speak with you. She wants to thank you for something. And I'm thinking to myself, did I give him an antibiotic? Because that would be why somebody would thank me, right? <laughs> so I, I, she passes the call in. I pick up the phone. And she says, Dr. Beeson, I want to thank you for rescuing my son. And she tells me about her son, this bright, young kid who had fallen into this abyss of depression. And, oh and they had tried everything, psychologists, psychiatrists, SSRIs, they were shattered that they had lost their boy. And she says to me, after their visit, for the first time in over two years, he's talking about his future. Yeah, viral pharyngitis. So I realized in that moment that we sometimes occasionally get to diagnose, treat, and cure disease, but our ability to make a difference in the lives of patients is the greatest source of oxytocin you know, serotonin and dopamine in our lives. And so that's why I've made my mission to have clinicians unleash that discovery. Right on. So that's my burnout story. Well, it sounds like it was angel inspired for <laughs> Maybe. I don't know what it was, but it was. It, it, you got touched by the magic wand in that encounter. Yes. Yeah. And there's been a number of different occasions where you just see, even though I'm not seeing patients all day, every day right now. I'm texting my mother-in-law right now regarding my father-in-law being in, you know, and managing a transitions of care and, and sort of being an advocate for better care for patients and better care for team members and sort of a, a broad life journey and purpose. But anyway, so that's, that, that's my scoop of how I sort of got here. Well, and, and I see divine intervention all over the place. You know, the initial spaghetti factory conversation, this child the the fact that you were saying to yourself, I'm not sure how much longer I can keep going like this. And you get touched to do a completely different thing and coaching the doctors in the organization. You concentrated on that to the point where you rolled it out. What was technically what they call today, didn't call it that back then, but a side gig, rolled it out into an independent business, 
Tell us a little bit about your business today. Yeah. So, you know, I was sitting in Starbucks around 2014 and thinking to myself, we know coaching and developing clinicians works because we were getting incredible results at the group level and at the individual level. And we also knew that it was hard as hell. Uh, it was very analog, <laughs> driving in small groups and shadowing. And I thought to myself, how could we use technology to enable the development of clinicians and the development of clinicians is to build skills to drive outcomes. But the outcome is not turning a box green. The outcome is I am the kind of clinician I always aspire to be. And there's a lot of elements in that. And I thought, you know, how could we use technology? So the idea of technology powered micro learning to build skills to drive outcomes was sort of born in a Starbucks, ended up getting uh, support from Sharp Healthcare to take that endeavor forward. And that was in 2015, 16 or so. And now we've got 20 plus thousand clinicians using what, what we call the Clinician Experience Project, which is a uh, skill building community using technology and an app on five minutes at a time to build skills, to connect with patients and to lead and to collaborate with colleagues and to advance our sense of wellness and self-care and what we want for our futures. And now starting the nursing experience project, doing the same thing for nursing. And uh, we've got lots of really innovative healthcare systems. And the idea of five minutes a week <laughs> is compelling. And technology to create synchronicity and common shared source code of everybody learning the same thing at the same time that scales in complex organizations with pre and post metrics on what we call programs, whether it be in wellness or patient experience or leader dev or team collaboration is has just we've gotten a lot of a lot of growth. And it's just been and I consider success to be not the green boxes, although that's the thing we're accountable to. We got better with time and move metrics, but I consider success to be Sunday night is not a, a sense of, oh my God, I can't do this again. But Sunday night is like, loathing, yeah, yes. yeah, you know, <laughs> that Sunday night syndrome. How do you feel on Sunday night? That's a burnout screening question. And it's like, yeah, it's hard. It's going to be hard. I mean, I've got 25 patients, but man, I got a freaking awesome team. Patients were, were, were humming. We're helping each other, supporting each other. And I'm super proud of, of who we are and who I am. And our leaders are getting it too. That's the scoop now. Right on. Well, let me let me just give some different words to what I think I'm hearing. I always talk about the lightworkers fork in the road, that point in the past where you decided to go into medicine rather than do anything else. It's honoring that ultimate urge to be a lightworker, a helper, and a healer. When you're true to yourself in that foundational urge of what got you here in the first place, right? Like you say, I want to be the doctor. I always want, I want to be that person. All the boxes go green. The whole environment goes green. It's like when they switch, when they switch from screams to laughter in, oh, that movie where uh, Sully, the monster, scares the little girl and it power. Oh, yeah. Monsters, monsters egg. egg. It's like when yeah. they switch from <laughs> screams to laughter, yes. right? It just blows the numbers out the top, right? And I'll just, I'll just say that five minutes, that's the kind of incremental growth that you have to promote because it's the only thing possible in a whirlwind. And here in our system, we always talk about baby steps, smaller is better. If you're intimidated by the thought of taking this new action, look down at your feet and take a smaller step. When it's so small that it's ridiculous, oh, that's ridiculous. Then I say, do it and then come back and talk to me. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. And for people to see, feel and realize whether it's pulling a teammate aside and calling them out for doing something extraordinary, and then they well up and hug you. And you go, wow, expressing gratitude to other people, that made a big difference for me and for them. Who would have thunk, right? <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. I, I was talking to a group of physician leaders this morning. I had a an 8 a.m. meeting, Eastern Standard Time, which means 
that it was 5 a.m. my time. So I was bright eyed and bushy tailed. And we talked about how do we lead in these incredibly hard times in which there are no words. And it was the same basic fundamentals of how do we value people? Uh, how do we have empathy for what they're going through? How do we rely on one another and, and have a sense of there for each other, sense of tribe and family? And, and it's the, the same basic elements of what makes for effective leaders, even though it happens to be dealing during a Delta surge. It's there's there's transcendency and what we do to fuel other people in adversity. Yeah, I, I always teach that leadership is like baseball. It doesn't matter whether you're Little League or World Series. There's still only four skills in baseball. Throw the ball, catch the ball, hit the ball, run. And right. to be a, to be a right. good leader, there's only four skills, but you do have to practice them. Number one is the one that's most often missing, and especially COVID has the ability to discombobulate this right away. Number one is show up. That's right. And if you never leave the ivory tower, if the only time a leader comes to visit their direct reports is when that person's in trouble, you can predict if your boss shows up, you're in trouble. That doesn't work, right? <laughs> that's right. I, I could not agree with you more. In fact, we just make it a coaching tip on what to do as a leader when there are no words. And there's one tip, and that is be out front. Yep. Show up. Show up. Because showing up and saying the wrong thing is better than not showing up and not saying anything. I mean, it's people need to see you. And what you learn from talking with people who are providing care, you, th- there was a CEO I met once who, as he began leading a hospital, he took a shift with the hospitalists, talking about showing up and what it was like. To, as a CEO to understand what that motor end plate of healthcare is actually like and, and what that did to decision making and empathy right. and understanding and shared decision making. And they've got a lot of great ideas and how we can collaborate together in the friendship and them understanding what it's like to be a CEO and the accountabilities that he has or she has. I mean, there's just simple things that leaders can do, you know, that are not a mystery to how we engage people when about 10% of all clinicians are engaged right now. And yet across the healthcare industry, and I've been in audiences like this, you may not get the same audiences as me because I'm always focused on burnout prevention. But time and time again, I've been in rooms with 50 to 100 senior leaders. And I've said, raise your hand if you shadow your providers. Two hands might go up. Um, I was in a meeting of CFOs. I had 20 CFOs in a Zoom room in the Hollywood Square. I'm sorry. No, no, it was great. It was great because they asked me to come in and talk about burnout. It was a CEO society from a state. It was a state hospital association, the CFO special interest group. And I said, how many of you have ever, ever, ever shadowed a provider? Two hands out of the 20 went up. And I said, how many of you do it regularly? And one guy said, yeah, well, I got started as a CFO in manufacturing. We always would walk the line once a week. It's like you walk the line in manufacturing once a week, but you're going to look at the largest P&L statement in your community and think that the sales tell you about the doctors when you've never watched the sausage being made. So in my mind, you deal with the good guys and the good gals. You deal with the teams that are interested in getting better. But so much in our industry, especially as it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, is completely impersonal. You never see your boss. And if you do, nine times out of 10, it's because you're in trouble. That's right. And you know, the one thing that I counsel leaders on, I I would say the single most important thing that capacitates all other imperatives before you is... Uh, the engagement of your team. You take care of that. All other things become possible. If you don't and you skip that step 
everything else is pushing water uphill and you're in a downward spiral because it's just, we need people to say, I love this place. I will access my discretionary effort to help this place succeed. And in order to do that, there's things that leaders must do. Starting with showing up. <laughs> Starting with showing up. Yeah, that's that's one of the... We have a 12. We have a P12. I just say, show up, ask questions, say thank you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, make it simple. <laughs> that's right. So we fixed healthcare, Dyke. So you know, what's go. next? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's oh, awesome. Oh, my goodness. Well, is there anything else you want to say or do or ask before we finish up for today, at least? Well, I think that we need to do this again. Okay. This is super fun. We, we, <laughs> yeah. I think that... I think my last comment is despite all the darkness that we see out there in healthcare, uh, the soul and the spirit of those providing care is still there. But we're at a tipping point. Uh, and if this strain on healthcare can enlighten leaders that those that provide care are the most important and most precious responsibility that they have, and if it shifts that set of priorities and actions and words and resourcing and funding to take care of the people that provide care to others, then the healthcare will be better as a result of the hell that all of us have been through. But if we don't, the very stability of our industry is in peril. Right. And right now, uh, just for reference, it's September 21st of 2021. We're in the wake. We're, we're in hopefully what is uh, the tipping point to the end of the Delta wave. And the, the dynamic is massive understaffing on the support staff side of the physicians around the country causing layoffs, vaccinating mandates or getting rid of nurses. So you can't hire an MA for love or money anywhere in the country. So I agree too. I think that should we weather this storm and should Delta choose to back off that there will be a window amongst certain healthcare leaders of willingness to take better care of their people. And I believe that that will become a competitive advantage. And the organizations that don't learn how to take better care of their people will be shellacked in the, in the years to come. We have already known for a decade that there was 120,000 doctor shortage coming by 2030. I think right. that wellness becomes more and more important as a recruitment and retention strategy. And without it, there just aren't going to be any. Right. It is. You, you cannot subsidize the loss of clinical talent. That there, there's no amount of revenue that will ever do that. And for us to, to hold back on supporting teams when the loss of a single clinician and the massive ripple effect that that has, it, it's just, again, take care of your people as your number one priority. And if I had a CEO gauge for accountability would be team engagement and all other things are secondary to that, including harm events, margin, patient experience, everything else is secondary everything. and in service to the engagement of the team. Show up. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Steve, thank you very much. Steve Beeson. Okay. Thanks, Dyke. Practicing excellence. <laughs>